Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds and the 20th Annual Pediatric Ethics Conference here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center on June 3rd, 2015. <laughs> June 3rd, 2015. It, um, it is a, it's a fun season. It's a service club season. Last night at the Fireside Inn, uh, some 18 or 20 of our colleagues from the Intensive Care Nursery representing 394 years of service gathered at the table. So uh, I know other groups are, are going tonight and next week. So that was, that was kind of fun to see that group. And I posted their picture to Twitter. Not, not that anyone's following me here. But um, along with some happy news, I have some sadder news to share um, that some of you may have heard that uh, Dr. Jack Gundy uh, died, actually, over the weekend. He graduated from Dartmouth College in 1958 receiving his MD from Cornell Medical School, went to complete residency at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Following his service in the U.S. Army, he returned to Dartmouth Medical School as a member of our pediatric faculty, where he helped start the clinics in Springfield, Vermont, Muscoma, and elsewhere. He then spent the majority of his career in private practice in Danbury and Brookfield, Connecticut, but retired to Corinth, Vermont, and uh, was therefore a regular visitor here at DHMC for our grand rounds. Uh, we will send an email around about his full obit obituary. There's a memorial service planned in August this summer. Uh, i also remind folks that uh, Joan Harris, Mark Harris's wife's um, memorial service will be July 18th, and we'll remind people of that, that news. So uh, many of you knew Dr. Gundy a lot better than I did. So Saul Rockenmacher wanted to make sure we let you know about that. So we continue in our grand rounds. Um, next week is June 10th. It will be Dr. Beher, Shashan. And today, as I mentioned, is the 20th annual um, Pediatric Ethics Conference organized by a, a stellar committee, including Bridget Mudge and, and Dr. Burnett. Um, today's speaker, Dr. McCauley, uh, joins the ranks of uh, a really impressive list of luminaries, most recently including Doug Dikema from Seattle, uh, Chris Wootner, um, our own Dr. Bernad in 2013, Mark Mercurio last year, and we're really thrilled to have another um, national luminary, but from our neighboring state next door, our friends uh, from University of Vermont, and Dr. Robert McCauley, who received his Bachelor of Arts from Wheaton College, a Master of Studies in Philosophical Theology at the University of Oxford, uh, a Master of Sacred Theology with an Ethics Concentration, and a Master of Divinity at Yale Divinity School, as well as a Doctor of Medicine at Yale uh, University School of Medicine in the early 90s. He subsequently has received the Master of Fine Arts, uh, but uh, completed his pediatric training at Johns Hopkins um, and um, has been in Vermont since uh, 2012, practicing as a uh, board-certified pediatrician, medical ethicist, practicing, in fact, as an Episcopal priest as well in Vermont. Uh, in addition to his uh, medical training. He worked as a pediatric hospitalist prior to coming to Northern New England and Stanford, Connecticut, as well as the director of pediatrics at Kaluva Hospital in Uganda. He is professor of pediatrics at the University of Vermont. His numerous specialties include clinical ethics, palliative medicine, pediatric palliative care, pediatric pain medicine. We have lots to learn and uh, share with Dr. McCauley, but we'll let him get to the podium quickly enough. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, it's always interesting um, to get uh, to speak at a different place. Um, and when my friend Jim Burnett invited me to come here uh, to do this talk about six months ago, I was very much honored and excited about it. And then a couple of months after that, he said, you know, it's about time to start planning for this. Uh, would you mind sending us the title of your talk? So I did. And then I got a very uh, crisp email back, and it said essentially, Bob, you are a brave man. Um, it always makes me interested what that means in terms of this interesting topic, because um, this is an interesting topic. It, it permits um, a fair amount of uh, humor, puns, and things like that, but it also can be rather dry and also rather contentious. So to try to make it a little bit more broad-ranging and hopefully more interesting, I'm going to try, and we'll see if we can actually pull this off, over the next hour to cover, in addition to a lot of interesting data, because we always have to have data at Grand Rounds, um, I'm going to mention unsolicited email requests from strangers for the return of long-lost body parts, uh, a battle royal between pediatricians and intactivists, and if you don't know what that means now, you will in a few minutes, a superhero that you've never heard of before, and probably for the first time at Grand Rounds, although I could be wrong on that too, a round of Name That Superhero theme song, um, a reference to 1970s-era Trident gum commercials and the thorny statistical problems that they pose. We'll let those who can remember back that far think about that. Special appearances by Austin Powers, Bill and Doug McKenzie, and Crocodile Dundee. And lastly, um, a radical proposal which will lead to a windfall for urologists nationwide. <laughs> All this together. Um, so, to state the obvious, neonatal male circumcision is a contentious uh, topic. Male circumcision is um, something that's talked about a lot. Um, in terms of HIV prevention, especially in Africa, this is a, a poster from Zambia talking about being circumcised, are you a man who cares? At the same time, there is a strong push uh, among certain groups in the United States to stop infant circumcision, um, and they have terms like intactivists and intaction and things like that. Um, so it's a contentious topic, which is something that I think I knew to some degree, but not fully until a couple of years ago. Um, so a personal story. So um, just when you think you've arrived, this is a letter that I got from the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, and it's from May of 2012, and it says, Dear Dr. McCauley, the Board of Directors has um, met to review appointments, and we're happy to appoint you to the Committee on Bioethics for a six-year term. So this is the kind of thing that, you know, that comes in the mail that you're really excited about. Like, this is when you open an envelope, this is what you hope is in there. It's the kind of thing you share with your mom. By the way, my mom was really happy to get this letter, the copy of it, when I sent it to her great proud of her son. And so I thought, this is great. You know, this is a sign of me going to where I wanted to go. So that was great. Um, another thing that happened um, was that AAP came out with its circumcision policy statement um, that said this, and we're going to go back over this phrase a lot. Evaluation of current evidence indicates that the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks and that the procedure's benefits justify access to, the, to this procedure for families who choose it. Specific benefits identified include prevention of urinary tract infections, penile cancer, and transmission of some sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. Was conclusion. So what I would draw your attention to are the dates. May 2012, August 2012. So this letter came and invited me to my first meeting to be held in October of that year. So I'm on the committee, I'm on the rolls, I've never even attended a meeting. And then this policy statement comes out, 
And the Committee on Bioethics evidently has their names and email addresses on some website. So the day the policy statement came out, I got this in the mail. Um, so this was an email that I received blaming me for the AP policy that I had absolutely nothing to do with. And let's just say this was a representative email from that week in my life. Um, I don't know who this gentleman is, um, and I certainly don't know where his foreskin is. Um, <laughs> Which, which is an awkward thing. Like, I, I'm sort of a polite person. That's the way my mom brought me up. And so I write everybody back who writes to me. And, you know, that was a very interesting email reply to Kraft, shall we say. Um, but I tried to do my best. So uh, these are um, protesters at the uh, NCE um, and PAS as well in terms of protesting the AEP stance on um, neonatal male circumcision. Um, Doug Dicamo was mentioned a couple of minutes ago. He was the primary representative on the Committee on Bioethics to this statement, and he actually had to register under an assumed name and be brought in with security guards through a back entrance to the NCE that year because of threats, just to put it in perspective. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this AAP technical report. So there was a policy statement that the AAP put out, which tend to be rather brief, and then they have a supporting technical report. And what I did is I broke it down by word count. Um, into these different um, areas. So as you can see, diseases and sexual satisfaction was almost a third of the technical report in terms of some of the data that we're going to go over in a few minutes. I draw your attention to this little tiny wedge right down here of ethics, which represented 4% on a word count of the technical report. Um, and what I'm going to do is really focus on the ethics of it, because I think the data by itself is interesting, but oftentimes how you interpret data reflects your ethical background and your ethical bias. So it's interesting that this all came down in this way, um, because as the old saying, those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. You may remember that in May of 2010, the AAP came out with a statement on female genital mutilation, and they had one tiny little statement in their recommendations that they said that um, offering a ritual nick was a potential compromise, um, that there were subsets of the population who believed in female genital mutilation, is what we would call that, and said, as long as we can make a ritual nick and draw at least one drop of blood, that will satisfy our cultural requirements without impacting the patient anymore. That was in May of 2010. The next month, under huge public pressure, the board of directors of the AP retracted the statement and clearly stated that we do not endorse the practice of offering a literal neck. So you know, they've already gone into this direction once and gotten a lot of pushback, and they retracted um, their statement. So it's an interesting point now. Um, in terms of what their, um, the AAP statement on male service. So this led to this big battle between pediatricians and intactivists. Um, and every time you have a cause um, or a battle, there's one thing that you need in order to potentially sway public opinion and rule the day. So what's the one thing every cause needs? That was too many people all at the same time. What do you need? A superhero. A Great, a superhero, yes. That's awesome, how do you know that? So every cause needs a superhero. So can anybody guess, if you were to choose a cause for the intactivist side, the anti-circumcision side, what do you think you'd call your superhero? Foreskin man. Foreskin man, exactly. 
remarkably educated audience. So there is some, there is a superhero. As you can see, I'm not kidding. The foreskin man. He has his Facebook page. Feel free to friend him. I guess if you want to at any point. Um, and he is the the cause celeb of the anti-circumcision movement. Um, no. So you have your superhero. Now there are three things that every superhero needs. What does every superhero need? Sidekick. Okay. Sidekick. Yeah, unfortunately, he does not have a sidekick, but that's common. What? So what else? Um, he needs power, but his power is sort of thwarting the, his arch enemy. So you need an arch enemy, right? You need a costume. You saw that. He needs a love interest, right? You guys thought of a lot of things I didn't think of. A love interest, a cool theme song, and an evil nemesis, right? Unfortunately for us, Foreskin Man has all three of these. Um, now, love interests is our next step. So before we kind of get into his, we'll see how good you guys are with superhero love interests. So who would Superman be without? Lovely. Well done. And Spider-Man? Um, Mary Jane. Mary Jane, exactly. All right, so this is for the younger crowd. Wolverine? The red hair. Jean Grey? Awesome, Jean Grey. Yes, well done. And... Foreskin man. Foreskin man. Bulba girl. Yes. So now we have a superhero. We have a love. And now we need a theme song. And the coolest thing, which we'll get to in a second, is that Bulba girl actually sings Foreskin man's theme song. But before we get that, as I said before, as promised, we're going to do one round of Name That Superhero theme song. See how good you guys are really good on the name. So we'll see about this. So please name the superhero. Well done. Superman. Well done. Awesome. So I gave I, I gave this talk once before, and I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you know the, the the words to the Wonder Woman theme song. They're basically just like Wonder Woman repeated over and over again, and nobody got it. Even when they said Wonder Woman, people were still kind of okay. So that was, that was great. All right, this one's a little harder. Six million dollar man. So I don't know if he's really a superhero, but I used to watch it a lot when I was a kid. So I just wrote it. All right. So, and Foreskin Man's theme song is sung by Volvo Girl, and I'll let this go on a little bit because the lyrics are um, illustrative. Except for it gives you an idea of what, what's going on there. That's Foreskin Man's theme song.
song. And the last thing he needs is an evil nemesis. So who would you think the foreskin man's evil nemesis would be? <laughs> Dr. Mutilator. Exactly. Um, so these are uh, people who do circumcisions, as it says here, on helpless baby boys, whether in our current society that would generally obviously be pediatricians or obstetricians. Um, and, you know, foreskin man's kind of got that blonde hair and the muscles and all that kind of stuff and vulva girl is attractive and all that kind of stuff. Do you think Dr. Mutilator is going to be equally as easy on the eyes? Probably not. Um, so um, that, that's who they're battling against. So this is, you know, obviously a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, it goes to show how far some groups will go in terms of you know, this is how they view people who do circumcision. All right, so let's come back a little bit to the evidence. So um, in the AAP statement, they said that the evaluation of current evidence indicates that the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks and that the procedure's benefits justify access to this procedure for families who choose it. That was their ultimate conclusion. So let's look at the medical benefits. So it's a re remedy for alcohol. Sorry. Oh, no, that's, that's 19th century benefits of circumcision. We got rid of those. So, and then the early 20, 20th century, we, okay, we got rid of those as well. So this is, this is late 20th century. So this is what the AAP statement says. Prevention of UTIs, penile cancer, and STIs, especially HIV. So the AAP says that the benefits outweigh the risks. So we're not the only smart people, right, in this country. You would think that if the AAP says that, and the benefits really do outweigh the risk that we would be doing it, like as, as humanity, not just in the United States. So let's look and see what the rest of the world is doing. So this is prevalence of circumcision in the rest of the world. As you can see, um, the red countries are greater than 80%. Uh, the sort of tan are 20 to 80%. The yellow is less than 20, and the white is no data. So as you can see, pretty much all of the countries, with a couple of exceptions, that are greater than 80% tend to be in Africa and the Middle East, which one might imagine either for health or cultural reasons. The United States and Canada, along with Australia and a couple of African countries, are in the 20 to 80% range, but I draw your attention to the less than 20%. So you're talking about all of Latin America, pretty much all of Europe, and a fair amount of Asia. So if the data is so compelling that the benefits outweigh the risks, it is interesting that in all those countries, which make up the predominant uh, percentage of the world population, less than 20% of males are circumcised. So let's look and see what professional bodies have said. So I put this on a spectrum of red being not permitted, should never do it, to discourage neutral benefits outweigh risks and recommend. So if you go back to the previous AAP statements, there were three in the early um, and in the late 70s. And they were, I put this in yellow because it's very neutral. There are no valid medical indications for circumcision in the neonatal period, is what the AAP said. In 89, this is a kind of a tint of green, circumcision might have benefits. In 1999, existing scientific evidence demonstrates potential medical benefits of newborn male circumcision. However, these data are not sufficient to recommend routine neonatal circumcision. So there's potential benefit. The Canadian Pediatric Society in three statements said that the overall evidence of the benefits and harms of circumcision is so evenly balanced that it does not support recommending circumcision as a routine procedure. So they're saying risks and benefits are balanced, so taking sort of a neutral stance. The British Medical Association kind of went a little bit on the negative side. Parental preference alone is not sufficient justification for performing a surgical procedure on a child. It's kind of a bold statement. The Royal Australasian College of Physicians 
said that the frequency of diseases modifiable by circumcision, the level of protection offered by it, complication rates, do not warrant routine infant circumcision in Australia and New Zealand. So we're all kind of hanging in the neutral, maybe a little negative. Um, then the Dutch um, uh, Medical Society said there's no convincing evidence that it's useful or necessary in terms of prevention or hygiene. Note, note that the date here is 2010. It entails the risk of medical and psychological complications. Non-therapeutic circumcision of male minors conflicts with the child's right to autonomy and physical integrity. So that's a pretty strong statement. In Germany, in 2012, the same year as the AAP statement, there was a court that said that the child's fundamental right to bodily integrity is more important than the parent's rights. And they said it should not be done. That was subsequently retracted by um, German higher courts. You can imagine what the, the fallout of a German court saying that a procedure that is part of Jewish culture is not permitted. And so there was all kinds of complexity there. Um, and so now you got the AEP in 2012. The health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks, and the procedure's benefits justify access to this procedure for families who choose it. So it's interesting. You're talking a lot of neutral, including the AEP, three on actually five separate occasions. Then you got a little bit of negativity, a lot of negativity there, and then all of a sudden we're out here, kind of by ourselves. So it made me wonder why that was. So I figured that there are three possible explanations, at least that I could think of. One, maybe there's new data after 2012 to say we now know stuff that we didn't know before. Maybe the British, the Australians, the Dutch, the Germans, the Canadians just aren't that good with data. Had to consider all the different possibilities. Or maybe this isn't really about data. So let's see about the data. Is it new? So this is all the data. These are all the articles noted in the AAP technical report that are showing the health benefits of routine neonatal male circumcision. And I won't ask you to read every single one, but I will tell you that the most recent study related to HIV, which is really the driving force behind this statement, was in 2007. So I don't think there's any new data out there, at least that they were citing, that would cause them to change their position and so deviate from the trend of other professional societies. So maybe the British, the Australians, the Dutch, Germans, and Canadians. So the British, the Australians, the Dutch. Um, it's hard to come up with a... Dutch funny person, that's um, Austin Powers uh, as a uh, gold member. Um, the Germans um, or the Canadians, maybe they're just not very good at data. But I don't really think that's true. I think they're probably just as good at data as we are. So that only leaves one other choice, right? This isn't really about data. If we're all working with the same data and we're coming to different conclusions, then maybe it's not about the data at all. So what I'm going to try to do um, is kind of review the ethical paradigm for decision-making in children, identify the ethical issues related to the neonatal male circumcision, and then formulate what I hope to be a clinically relevant and ethically appropriate position on the topic. So let's look at the ethical paradigm. So this will probably be review for everybody, but the AAP Committee on Bioethics, a very famous statement um, on informed consent uh, in pediatrics, talk about this notion of parental permission. So parents give permission that needs to be informed on behalf of their child and then try to get the assent of the child whenever that's appropriate. Obviously, that's not a possibility in the newborn period. In terms of the ABCs of decision-making, um, ideally, when a patient has a decision to make or there's a decision to be made for a patient, the patient makes the decision for themselves. If they are unable to make a decision based on the pure autonomy standard, then we go to what we call substituted judgment where somebody else says, well, this is what they would have said if they could say it. But that's not a possibility, mostly, 
in, for younger children because we don't know what somebody will say when they grow up because they haven't determined their values and character, et cetera, at that point. So generally, in pediatrics, at least in the pre-adolescent age group, we fall back on the best interest standard, which is what a reasonable person would want. Um, now, best interest sounds really good, but I think it's important to note that it is the third best of three because it really has nothing to do with the patient. It has to do with somebody else thinking what's in that patient's best interest or somebody else thinking what a reasonable person would want. So a couple of relevant points to draw from that. Generally, it doesn't make sense to ask what an infant would do when he grows up because who the heck knows what that person will think when they grow up. Unless we are dealing with a situation when it's pretty darn clear what grown-up infants would choose. Like if you think about it, all of us here might be classified as grown-up infants, right? Like we're all infants at one point. So it's an interesting question to ask if we can extrapolate from what, say, adult males would choose for themselves as to whether or not we should be doing that to newborn males. Um, also, we don't generally make decisions for children for conditions that only impact them as adults. So that's why we are, tend not to reveal carrier status for recessive conditions, which tends to, in most cases, only have reproductive implications, even if we know it, um, to parents when they ask, because the child should have the right when they grow up to either know or not know. Um, and similarly, this notion of increased genetic risk, do we tell a child that, do we tell parents that, um, or do we wait until that child is now of the age of majority to decide, do you really want to know what your genetic risk is? So as an example, it's interesting when we talk about increased risk. So this is just general data about increased risk from BRCA mutations. And as we all know, that if you're BRCA positive, um, then you have an increased risk of breast cancer and increased risk of uterine cancer. So if we were going to be talking about preemptive treatment for certain conditions in order to prevent somebody from suffering from something, then I find myself interested in the fact that we know from studies that if over 80% of BRCA-positive women opt for a mastectomy, hysterectomy, or both. But I've never heard anybody talk about prophylactic mastectomies for female infants, even though we know that 80% of women who are BRCA-positive are going to opt for that. We're not testing babies for BRCA mutations and saying we're going to do prophylactic mastectomies. So it's an interesting question about the degree to which we engage in certain decisions before the patient can do so for themselves, I think most of the time people are like, well, that's just wrong. We should wait for the patient to grow up enough to make her own decision. So I'd invite you to think about if there's an extrapolation on that to the issue of neonatal male circumcision. All right, so what are the ethical issues related to neonatal male circumcision? I think there are two. One is the notion of best interest and evidence of benefit, which is where the data comes in. And the second is timing, which goes back to what I was just saying about letting children grow up and make their own decisions. All right, so best interests. As I said before, um, almost a third of the technical report had to do um, with diseases and sexual satisfaction. And the evidence of benefit that the technical report on routine neonatal male circumcision noted had to do with three things, infantile UTIs, sexually transmitted diseases including HIV, and penile cancer. So we just got done saying that we tend not to make decisions for pediatric patients for adult onset diseases that they could make decisions for themselves when they reach the age of majority. So let's look at the age of onset. So the age of onset of infantile UTI obviously is all in childhood, by definition. Sexually transmitted infections, in terms of HIV specifically, I'll show you data in a few minutes, only about 5% of HIV cases are noted in terms of prevalence in the United States for those under age 20. And some of those are obviously were not contracted during childhood, but were perinatal transmission. 
So the vast majority are contracted during adulthood. And penile cancer is essentially entirely a disease, not only of adulthood, but tend to be older adults. So when we talk about the diseases that we are preventing in childhood, we're talking about really UTIs and a small sliver of sexually transmitted infections. So let's look at UTIs for a second. So the risk of infant UTIs in normal boys with normal anatomy is about 1%. And studies have shown there's a 30 to 90% decrease in circumcised infants. So is there a benefit? Absolutely. Circumcision will decrease the risk of UTI in, in male infants. The number needed to treat um, based on prevalence and the decrease is about a little over 100. So what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to do, according to that study, 111 male circumcisions in the neonatal period in order to prevent one case of a UTI in a male infant. What about sexually transmitted infections before we get to HIV? Chlamydia studies have shown no effect on chlamydia transmission, no effect on gonorrhea transmission, um, and HPV, there is a reduction in circumcised males. Um, and we'll talk about what that means in the era of Gardasil in a minute. So what about HIV? So HIV is the thing that people were quoting. If you read headlines about the technical report about the AAP statement, it was all about reduction of HIV transmission. And what it said was, and this is in the technical report, that there is a 60% decrease in HIV transmission, 60%, which is a big number. You know, HIV is a very serious illness, and 60% is a really big number, and so that catches people's attention. Why don't we dig a little deeper? So this is based almost entirely um, on studies in sub-Saharan Africa, um, where what they would do is they would randomize a group and say, okay, if you agree to be in the study, we're going to circumcise half of the group, and we're going to leave the other half uncircumcised, and then we're going to measure the risk of contracting HIV over a, a finite period of time over the course of the study. So that introduces something called lead time bias, because in that part of the world, the predominant way that you contract HIV is through sexual activity. And if you're circumcised, recently circumcised, let's just say you're probably not at risk of contracting anything from sexual activity for a little while after the circumcision. And the, the, the time course was such that those who were not circumcised had the opportunity, should they choose to take it, to be sexually active over the entire course of the study, while those who were circumcised were kind of out of commission for about the first few weeks. So if you then do apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, it changes it from a 60% decrease to a 50% decrease. Wow, 50%. That's still a lot, right? You're cutting it in half. But that's a relative risk reduction. If you look at the actual risk in the study population, those who were not circumcised had a 2.5% chance of HIV acquisition in the study period, and it got reduced to 1.3%. So the absolute risk reduction is a little over 1%. So you can, you know, there's that old saying about lies, damn lies, and statistics. So you could either say there's a 1% absolute risk reduction in HIV, and I'm not sure if that's going to catch many people's attention. Or you could say there's a 60% reduction, relative <coughs> risk reduction, and that is going to catch people's attention. So it depends on which frame you're going to look at this. The other really important thing, really, really important thing, is that this is for men who have sex with women. The primary sexual transmission in sub-Saharan Africa is through heterosexual contact. So the studies here are all about HIV transmission in a heterosexual context. So the studies did not show any decrease in HIV transmission or acquisition for men who have sex with men. 
which is the predominant method of transmission in the United States. So this is HIV acquisition in the United States, um, and the pink, or the purple or lavender, whatever color that is, is male-to-male sexual contact. As you can see, if you were to look at heterosexual contact, which is the yellow sliver for males, it's a very small proportion compared to male-to-male sexual contact. So we're doing a little bit of apples to oranges, taking the African studies and trying to extrapolate them into a different context. What about penile cancer? The prevalence of penile cancer in the United States is about 0.58 cases per 100,000. There is fair evidence of a decreased risk of acquiring penile cancer with circumcision. The number needed to treat ranges from good evidence of about 1,000 to fair evidence of roughly 320,000. So, in other words, you would have to do anywhere between 1,000 to 300,000 routine neonatal male circumcisions in order to prevent one case of penile cancer in adulthood. So let's look at the summary of evidence of benefit. Infantile UTIs. There is a decrease, absolutely. There's already a very low incidence, and I would wonder about the severity. Um, I don't mean to minimize the impact of a urinary tract infection, but in the grand scheme of what we see in pediatrics, an infantile UTI in a male infant with a normal anatomy that's treated, I'm not sure what we think about the overall severity of that condition. Uh, penile cancer, there is a decrease, but there's a very low incidence in the number needed to treat, as we said before, is very high. Sexually transmitted infections other than HIV, there is a 30 to 40% reduction in HPV. Uh, and as I said before, I wonder what that means in the era of Gardasil. Are we as focused on HPV prevention as we begin to immunize further against HPV? And lastly, HIV, the absolute risk reduction, about 1% in heterosexual males. And what is the applicability in light of the epidemiology in the United States? So, even if you deem all that evidence compelling, I would ask you, why not wait until the patient can make his own decision? What if you were to say, I, I saw the evidence, I re reviewed the data, I think it's, I think it's pretty powerful. Um, especially about the things of adult onset, like sexually transmitted infections and uh, penile cancer. I would ask, why not wait until the patient can make his own decision? And that comes back to timing. So what are the arguments against waiting? One is the increased risk of contracting the disease. Because as you wait, especially for infantile UTIs and sexually transmitted infections, you're at risk. There's an increased risk of complications for circumcision done in the adult period as opposed to the neonatal period. I'll talk more about that in a second. And what about the psychological impact of having to circumcise adult males? So what about the risk of increased risk of contracting disease? Infantile UTIs, I'm going to concede that point by definition. Penile cancer, I don't think there is any increased risk because that generally is a disease of older adulthood. And what about sexually transmitted infections? Let's look at that. This is HIV prevalence by age. As you'll see over here, the, this color, this color, and this color represent um, less than 20 years of age which works out to be a little over 5%. And some of those are going to be perinatally acquired. <coughs> so we're talking about roughly 5% of HIV acquisition in the United States before age 20. So let's run the numbers. There are about 37,000 new cases of HIV in men in the United States each year. If we grant that 12% are via heterosexual contact, based on the data that I showed you, that's a little over 4,000. If we assume that all that 5% 
of prevalence before age 20 is by virtue of acquisition through heterosexual contact, which is a big assumption, then 222 or thereabouts patients under 20 in the United States um, would acquire HIV each year through heterosexual contact. And if, sorry, if circumcision confers around 50% protection, which is that relative risk reduction, then if you circumcise, you will prevent, if you circumcise all newborn males, you'll prevent a little over 100 cases. There are 2 million male infants born each year. So if we were to circumcise them all, the number needed to treat would be roughly 18,000 circumcisions to prevent one case of HIV prior to age 20. And in the era of numbers needed to treat, 18,000 is a really high number. But you might say, what about the female partners? So there was a meta-analysis with good evidence cited in the technical report. Um, plus six longitudinal analyses that found no protective effect of male circumcision on female partners. And there was one RCT with good evidence that found a 50% increase in risk of transmission to female partners due to circumcision. So we need to make sure we understand that circumcision doesn't always confer benefit to everyone involved. All right, so those are the increased risks of contracting disease. What about the increased risk of complications? So the risk of complications in infants has been cited in the AP technical report as about 0.2%, so a pretty low number. The risk of complications in adults is orders of magnitude greater, so 10, 100 times greater. So I maybe wonder, why are the risks so high for adults? One is the procedure is often done for a medical reason. So sometimes it's done for preventive reasons, but oftentimes it's done for a medical reason, which means there's a medical condition which may increase the risk of complications. Also, the procedure may not be performed by a skilled operator. So let's look at that for a second. So this is the study that was um, cited in the AP report um, about complications of neonatal child circumcision. That's kind of where they got that 0.2% number from. I'm not going to ask you to read all this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight those countries where the studies were done that were in Africa. And there were four, Tanzania, Nigeria, Nigeria, Nigeria. All the rest, um, USA, Canada, UK, South Africa, which I'm kind of counting differently in terms of its uh, technology, et cetera. So those are the ones that were done in underdeveloped countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. Same study, this is how they got their comparison of orders of magnitude greater. Complications of adult circumcision. Let's look and see how many of these were done in Africa. Almost all of them. The ones that weren't were in South Africa. And the reason for it is the place where you are doing a lot of male circumcisions is in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm wondering about technology, I'm wondering about support systems, I'm wondering about proficiency. And why are risks higher in adults? Maybe because circumcision is often performed under general anesthesia. And here, I would wonder about our assumptions. So our assumption is that newborns don't require general anesthesia for circumcision. So just going back a little bit in history, I trained in the mid-90s in my pediatric residency and we had just started putting a little dab of emla on about an hour before we served kids. That was all we did. Up until then, we didn't do anything. Now we said, well, let's put some emla on, which, you know, granted, is a step in the right direction, but it's really not much of a step if you think about it. Nowadays, the standard of care is much different, right? We're doing nerve blocks, et cetera. But we don't do general anesthesia. We use a local anesthetic. Complication rates are low. And we say newborn circumcision is safe. Complication rates are low. But then we say, well, if you're a child or an adolescent or an adult, well, you do require general anesthesia for circumcision. So we use general anesthesia. Complication rates are high. 
And then we say, because complication rates are high, we should go to where the complication rates aren't high, which is over here, and we should do it as neutral. So why exactly do older patients require general anesthesia while babies don't? I kind of haven't figured that out yet. I think it's probably because if you went to an adult and said, hey, we're going to do a circumcision, and we're just going to do a little nerve block, and you're going to be awake the whole time, they might not be so psyched about the circumcision. But we don't get a chance to ask the babies that because we don't have a chance to answer <laughs> question that assumption, then the increased complications argument may collapse under itself. Then, arguments against waiting, the psychological impact. So there was a study um, that was done that said, circumcision may be psychologically unpleasant in adults in a way not to infants. It's, that's a really funny statement, isn't it? Um, so, I love the way it's said, maybe psychologically unpleasant. But um, I think that it's an interesting question that we can measure the psychological unpleasantness in adults because we can ask somebody, right? How psychologically unpleasant is that for you? Are you worried? Do you not want this? We can't really do that with babies, right? But the studies that we are now learning from have shown that increased painful stimuli in very early stages of childhood, including the newborn period, change our pain threshold later in life. They change our response to painful stimuli later on. So even if we can't, a baby can't verbalize it, they can express it later in life. Um, all right, so with that as background, I'm gonna to try to formulate in my last few minutes a clinically relevant and ethically appropriate position related to the topic. So where have we come so far? We shouldn't make decisions for children that they can reasonably make when they reach adulthood. The predominant medical benefit of circumcision is for conditions acquired after childhood. Thus, I would argue, we should, as health policy, defer routine male circumcision to adulthood. Now, I'm not talking about religious things here now. It's interesting when you bring religion into play. So I'm going to make an argument in just a second that says that if you have an infant male, then you can potentially extrapolate to say, well, I don't know if he would really want to be circumcised because when he gets to be an adult, most adults don't want to be circumcised. That may be different in certain religious groups, and people have made this argument to say, like, if you're part of a religious group of which circumcision is a really important notion of belonging, then maybe you would want that later, and that might change that. All right. But you're probably saying, this creates a whole new set of workforce issues. The urologists are going to have to do, clear a lot of time in the OR to do two million circs a year. And those of us who do circs now are going to lose a lot of money, because the intactivists think that pediatricians make a ton of money on circumcisions. <laughs> so let's look at that. So um, neonatal male circumcision is covered by 33 state Medicaid programs <laughs> to the tune of about 200 million a year. Private insurers kick in about 675 million. The complications that are sometimes, if you think about it for adults, would um, double the cost to about 1.75 billion. So it's a lot of money involved. And to be honest, I think that the AAP statement largely was about funding. Like the reason they said what they said was in order so that state Medicaid programs like, wouldn't force anyone to get circumcised, but their concern was a justice issue that if you're in a state that Medicaid doesn't cover circumcision, then are you deprived of that? Um, and so clearly that was part of what they were thinking. All right. Um, and lastly, just how are we going to make sure that these patients, these adult patients, based on my proposal, are going to get circumcised since they're no longer a captive audience? Like, you know, we bundle circumcision with birth, right? And it happens in the hospital, and no one gets to say no. It all is part of something, and it makes it easy to catch people because you get them before they leave the hospital. So how are we going to solve that problem? Easy. We present the evidence of medical benefit based on the AAP technical report to every male on his 18th birthday at the age of majority. And just like the AAP task force 
this 18-year-old male will find the data compelling and provide informed consent, probably on the spot, for circumcision. <laughs> you can even bundle circumcision with other major life events other than birth. You know, you graduate from high school, you do a good search. You know, you go to, before you go to prom, you get searched, right? Like, it's perfect. It's a way of a reminder, you know? It's sort of like, you know, you change your batteries in your smoke detectors, you know, at daylight savings. It's sort of a way of bundling it all together. It's a great plan. You guys are laughing. Go buy this plan. But there's a small problem. So the intactivists will say that 10 out of 10 babies oppose circumcision. And I would bet that 10 out of 10 18-year-olds would too. <laughs> like, how do you think if there's an 18-year-old in the room? He's like looking at me like, are you serious about this plan? <laughs> Which brings us to the, what I call the quandary of the fifth dentist. Seems like a digression, but it's not. So Trident gum, you guys all know Trident gum. For those of us who grew up in a certain era, you may remember that commercial for Trident gum um, that said four out of five dentists surveyed recommend Chardoise gum for their patients who chew gum. It kind of rolls off the tongue. I heard it so many times when I was watching TV when I was a kid. It kind of makes you wonder where that fifth dentist went to dental school. 80% <laughs> is really good, but shouldn't five out of five dentists really not be sugar gum? Anyway, so, but it comes back to data and how many people we think would want this. So if it's true that most adults wouldn't want to get circumcised if they had a chance, why do we think that that's what they would have wanted when they were a kid? So but you're saying most 18-year-old males would reject circumcision. Here's a quote. Newborn males who are not circumcised at birth are much less likely to elect circumcision in adolescence or early adulthood. That's from the AAP statement. They, they, they're clear on that. They said, look, if you wait, they're not going to want it. So in a sense, what they're saying is, if you wait to give the patient a chance to decide for himself, he's going to say no. So we got to do it before he has a chance to tell us what he thinks. As an ethicist, that's not what I really like to hear, right? Like, that's kind of concerning. Which brings us back to ethics. So it's generally not appropriate to use substitute judgment for infants, since we have no idea what they're going to say. But what if we're pretty sure that they would refuse when they get to be an adult? Does this become a case of someone knowing what's good for a patient and making sure to do it before the patient has any say in the matter? And for a lot of parents, what's good about neonatal male circumcision has nothing to do with health outcomes. This is from a study from a few years ago. And said, why did you decide to have your baby circumcised? You know, health reasons, sure. This is back when the AP was saying that the health benefits were equally weighed by risks. Um, but look at these. Looks like dad, doctor told me to, religion. Looks like his peers, looks like his brother. Like, let's be clear, most parents, when they're deciding, aren't really saying, I've re reviewed the AAP technical report, right? <laughs> it's largely a cultural decision for whatever reason. All right, my final summary. Parents have the right to decide regarding their infant son's circumcision. Like, I think that if we sort of say the AAP went too far to the green, I'm not trying to pull us back to the red, necessarily. Um, but I say that I think it's important to be honest and say this is largely a personal cultural decision. In a way, I think the AP technical report sought, some might say cherry-picked, but sought data from a medical point of view to give medical backing to what I think is primarily a cultural decision. And I think the impact on childhood health is not sufficient to claim medical benefit. And adult males have the right to consent to circumcision given increasing medical benefit in their age group. So we need to recognize that. So I'm not trying to take away the funding. Um, and I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't do it ever. But I think what I'm trying to say is 
we should be clear and honest and forthright about why we do it and not try to have data say things that personal, personally I don't think it says. Um, and maybe this impacts how we have in our own practice conversations with parents about circumcision. And is this what you want? Why do you want it? In order to try to get a better sense from them about why they're saying that in order to have real informed consent from parents about what they're hoping for for their baby. So we have 10 minutes left, I think, and I'll be grateful for comments and questions. Well, thank you very much, and I really appreciate your uh, discussion this morning. Um, I've always had a problem with, you know, uh, the religious aspect of circumcisions, being a gynecologist. You know, where one religion says it's okay to have male circumcision, but it's not okay for a female circumcision. But, so I, I, still, I still find it very, I feel conflicted about that. But I did, I did have a, one question about your, about the, from a medical standpoint, i just like to have your comments. I, I'm not really familiar with the primary studies that looked at HIV in Africa and whether it carried out. But I think that because there's such a social stigma against homosexuality in Africa, I don't know you'd be able to really get a good population of homosexuals and then say, well, it doesn't really impact HIV and male-to-male transmission, but it does impact on male-to-female transmission. So I'm not really, I don't know whether you have any more, any more input, thoughts about that. But like I said, I think that it'd be hard to kind of get someone in Africa to volunteer that they're homosexual and do this study. I would think. I would agree with you. And I think that the reason that the studies were done in Africa um, and in that population was you were, that was a population you were able to intervene with. And that was their social more is to have primarily uh, heterosexual transmission. I agree with you. It's not like anybody was trying to obfuscate or hide data on randomized trials with men who have sex with men. I'm just not familiar with any trial that's ever been done on that. And I don't know how you'd ever really practically do that. So it's not, I don't mean to say that HIV transmission is reduced heterosexually, but is not reduced with male to male sexual contact. I'm just saying that there isn't, I don't believe we have data, as you said, on male to male sexual contact. So to make an inference from male to female may not be reliable in our context. Thanks, that was great. I, I helped one of our fellows, I'm looking around for her on a project on this for her neonatal fellowship. She was doing a shared decision making tool. And we ended up reviewing all the same things on complication rates and STDs and et cetera, and penile cancer, all the things that you could have parents make an informed decision. And what we came up that was even higher incidence was that one that's talked a lot about in the literature, which are the surgical complications, meaning if you're uncircumcised, what is the rate of your needing to have a circumcision because of phimosis later in childhood? And then also, what is your rate of having um, neonatal stenosis if you are circumcised? And both of those are more kind of in the UTI range, you know, the 1% kind of range. So we ended up putting that on our grid, too, because we felt like that was something that people were more likely to run into and perhaps feel badly one way or the other about the decision that they had it's a great point. I don't mean to in any way claim to have done an exhaustive review of the pros and cons, because the one piece that I left out was the sexual satisfaction piece, which is hotly debated um, in terms of... That really came out wrong. Sorry about that. Um, so all that to say is, you know, it's an interesting question, though, about how much information parents really can process. 
So I think it's great to be comprehensive, um, but when you start using terms that most people don't know, like phimosis and meatal stenosis, um, and parents have just had a baby or you know, anticipated having a baby, I think I'm wondering from a practical standpoint how informative, like it's clearly literally informative, but helpfully informative. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, because I think that in the end, we can go la 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 about all the data. But I think that largely, my suspicion is it's a cultural emotional decision about how you want your baby to, to look. Um, assuming you don't have specific religious requirements, um, or do you just have an aversion to any kind of intervention that is based on probabilities? And I think it, it, I tend to think a lot of parents decide on that basis. That, that was a very compelling and convincing argument, and I'd like to have your thoughts about, A, was this sort of argument uh, discussed at the academy group that made the decision to promulgate this this recommendation. And number two, uh, if it had been presented, what are what is your interpretation of the political and other reasons that the decision was made to put out a, a statement as as it uh, as it stands now? So uh, um, I'm limited in the, in the sense that, as I, as I said at the beginning, the statement came out before I was part of the committee, so I wasn't part of any of the discussions. Um, in my conversations with Doug Dikema and other people on the committee now, I think that um, the, the fact remains is if you want to be really crisp about it, I do think that, the, that there are health benefits to circumcision. Like if you want to be really crisp about it. The question though, I don't think is are there health benefits to circumcision? I think is, the question is, do the health benefits of circumcision justify the use of it routinely in the neonatal period? when it could otherwise be decided otherwise, or it could be deferred to a later time. Um, the interesting piece about the process was that um, for reasons that I am not privy to, um, the statement came out of a committee and did not actually go through the entire Committee on Bioethics as it usually does. It was reviewed by one person on the Committee on Bioethics, um, who was Dr. Dikema, which is why he's sort of, he's the one ethicist on that statement and why he's been the object of such vitriol from the intactivist movement. Um, I think that in the end, the AAP looks at it as a measured statement um, and a political um, statement, if you will, of support of funding from a justice perspective. And I think I would have been personally more comfortable as a statement if they had simply said, there are some benefits, we're not sure if it really ethically justifies it, but parents may choose to do so based on a variety of factors, and we believe this is within the realm of parental discretion, and thus we feel like finances should not stand in the way of you doing it. Like, actually, I, I would respect that conclusion more than the conclusion that they reached. But that's all I know about how the process went out. So, um, it's, uh, my name is Kathy Shepkin. I met you last month at Mount Washington. Remember, yeah. It was just as funny the second time around, and I still didn't get Wonder Woman, which totally irritates me. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the monetary implications. I practiced in Washington before I moved here, one of the, 30, one of the states that didn't have um, Medicaid reimbursement. And I think I shared with you last month that our hospital actually said, we're not going to do circumcision in the hospital because you were not getting reimbursed for it. So if you community docs want to do it, go ahead. So it was our group and a couple of other groups that did it. And all our groups had cash on the table in order to get the circumcision. You actually had to come with cash in hand to pay for it, regardless if you were private or public insurer, because it was not covered in the state of Washington as a routine medical procedure. 
And we had plenty of patients who complained to us saying, it's not fair, just because I'm poor, I can't get the circumcision at your office. And so I'm wondering, since the AAP statement came out, do you know, has it increased the Medicaid coverage? Has now 45 states covered instead of 33 states covered it? It's a fabulous question. I, as I do not know the answer, but that's a great question. And I will make sure to that up for my own learning. But that was the intent. But I, I do not know off the top of my head whether that's happened. But clearly it was the intent. Great. Just a few thoughts from the urology perspective. <laughs> a lot of the uh, families that see circumcision um, after the neonatal period, um, it seems heavily driven by moms who um, anticipate problems that dads don't seem to feel nearly as strongly about. <laughs> um, a lot of talk about locker rooms and what might be going on in locker rooms where moms have not been. Um, so deeply held beliefs and fears. Um, obviously, these are very private issues and they're hard for people. I think you know the medical discussion is very uh, clear for people to sort out when you have that training, but lay discussions like the guy with the hand. It's so emotional. Um, but these are things that people don't talk about openly, which makes them more loaded and harder for them to get down to the real specifics that do matter, like phimosis and neosmosis, which are actually much more meaningful decision um, uh, factors, I think. And then the last thing I want to mention was, if you take the UTI data and you extracted the babies that had phimosis, you have a much more meaningful bit of research. Um, if you took, you know, if, phimosis is a major factor, so maybe the policy should be that it would be routine to do uh, circumcisions on phimotic babies at age one. That would that would change UTI uh, risk significantly, but not worry about it up until age one. And, and I appreciate your comments very much. I think that that's an interesting approach, but the, I think the benefit to this approach is a blanket, like you're trying to draw nuances, which I really love, but it's hard. I think sometimes in policy statements, they like to be like, this is what to do, as opposed to drawing out these distinctions by the really So this is now popping up a lot of interest stuff from colleagues I'm leaving, who's going to be joining the NIM conference at uh, the L5A um, with the Revenue Case presentation. So I imagine he'll be here as the president of you, so this going to continue Yeah, yeah, yeah.